Hello, listeners. We invite you to sharpen your swords and your minds and join hosts Sam and Clay each week as they delve into the historical context, leadership, and tactics surrounding significant battles and campaigns throughout time. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Art of War. Hey, everybody. This is uh, Sam. And this is Clay. And uh, this is another installment of the Art of War podcast. We're going to be talking about the Siege of Tyr and uh, continuing on Alexander the Great's campaign, Conquering the World. So today's today's podcast is going to be wild. I think it's going to be the more interesting one we talk about. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, the, the Siege of Tyr is just... <laughs> I don't know. It's just such a wild chain of events, really. It's just a whirlwind. I was reading about it, and I was just very astonished by what actually went down. Yeah, it's pretty insane. You don't really hear much about instances of this happening, especially at the speed that it occurred. So I guess let's let's re let's re. Uh... Yeah, there's actually a lot of background that goes into this, not just yeah. like what's been happening um, with Alexander the Great's campaign, but also like the history of Tyr is pretty important to why this siege actually started and the phoenician people they're very unique in who they are as as a as a group right. they're not just a typical middle easterns they're they're more greek in in origin yeah they're like focused around um what is it they're focused around like trade and um yeah they're they're very naval oriented very ocean bound they they're on the levant in the middle east and they border most majority of all of their cities border the uh, mediterranean sea and so they would trade actually with uh you know cyprus and greece and they'd cross over to thrace so they were very right. their entire culture was based on the ocean yeah based on the ocean based on trade they were also very good craftsmen because mm-hmm. that was a that was a big a big trading aspect of them too but yeah so yeah i think like textiles i think what phoenician means like purple or something like that because they traded purple textiles i don't know <laughs> which was Purple, yeah, and purple was very, very high up, very uh, wealthy color. If you wore purple, it means you were rich as hell. But so Alexander's just now, you know, defeated Darius. Put him, put him on the the back burner. He's on his heels, running. Right, right. So Darius has to like lick his wounds, yeah. right? He doesn't. He has to amass an entire new army at this point. So he's not going to be able to confront Alexander for a while. Yeah, so Alexander's got free reign of, he's already taken Asia Minor, now he's in the Middle East, which is pretty much central Persia, or near central Persia. It's the, uh, you know, the interior, interior, and so he's launching a full-scale invasion. Once again, like with uh, Isis and, and Granicus, he, he has a large focus on taking coastal cities, coastal fortifications, because Macedonians don't really have a navy. They have very little uh, impact navally. Yeah. And so his objective usually is is to just take all of the coastal cities, so they can't launch a counteroffensive, landing some troops on right on their flank. And it's, it's going pretty well, right? Like yeah, <laughs> pretty much all the cities are just surrendering. They're uh, they don't they can't fight the Macedonian forces and the army. And they Alexander has such fame now after the Battle of Issus that they're like, okay, yeah. And and the majority of them are very heavily fortified, and he's got a standing army of fifty to sixty thousand. And he just, you know, he'll roll up and maybe the last two or three days, but usually they give in, they surrender. But then, as he's making it uh, down south on the coast, he encounters probably one of the most well-fortified and defended cities in the world at that time, which was Tyr, which was the largest city in the entirety of uh, Phoenicia. 
Yeah, yeah. It, and it is on an island. It's an island city. It's a little bit off the coast, which makes it a lot, you know, more fortified and harder to get to. Especially whenever you take into account that the Macedonians have almost no navy. So they were having to make a frontal attack from the land if they want to siege it. So that's what they plan to do is siege it because there's no way they're going to be able to break into the actual city themselves because... Well, so actually, right, it's it, it, the siege wasn't the plan at first. True, true. Because Tyr, when, when Alexander went there, it was pretty much going to go down the same where Alexander demanded surrender and Tyr was pretty much on board with that. They were like, okay, we can be allies, right? We don't want to get sieged by this giant army. Um, but so we have to actually go into the history of Tyr a little bit to explain how this all worked. But basically, the background of Tyr, there is Old Tyr, which was on the mainland, mm-hmm. and it was sieged in, I think, the 6th century BCE for like 13 years by Babylon. And so during that very lengthy siege, most of the inhabitants of Tyr just left and went to the island. And then that's where they built the new city. And the leaders then kind of turned it into theocracy, where they were just like, hey, this god, we call him Melkart, which is basically Hercules. Mm. He's going to replace all of our old gods. And us as the leaders of the city are the only people that are in contact with him. And you as the inhabitants of the city are the only people that are like close to him because this is his city, the holy city. And so this like theocracy really developed the culture of Tyr on the island. Nation. And yeah, interesting enough is that the the highest building in all of Tyr was the temple to Melkart, which was also very fortified and was the more most center uh, piece of architecture in in Tyr itself. Right, right, yeah. So with this new religion, they have a special ceremony that they do called the Egeris where they sacrifice a effigy of Melkart on a raft in the ocean and burn it. And during this time, they have to kick every single uh, foreigner out of out of the city because it's like seen as very sacred. And so when Alexander comes up, he it is very close to the ceremony. And Alexander, throughout this, his entire campaign, his entire life, is very infatuated with different gods. As we see, he makes a bunch of different mm-hmm. side trips to go um, sacrifice different gods. But so he, one of his requests is that he wants to sacrifice to their god Melkart. And the leaders of Tyr were like, no, you can't do that because that's sacrilegious. And Alexander was like, I'm going to do it or else. And he sent his envoys to relay that message. And then the people of Tyr killed the envoys and threw him over the, um, into the ocean. And so then that's basically what started the siege. Yeah, they actually executed them in full view of the encamped troops on top of the wall and then chucked them into the ocean. So that was like, you know, that was a blatant uh, slap in the face to Alexander to say, like, how, how dare you? How dare you try to impede our religious practices and be part of it? Because Alexander does also, to an extent, see himself as, you know, Hercules, a demigod, some, something above a mortal. So he thinks he can just do whatever he wants, and they're not they're not down with that at all. So it, it's there's a lot of bad blood that spawns from just that initial encounter. Right, right. So, yeah, it's just off on the wrong foot pretty much. And Alexander just, you know, he's going to engage in the siege, and then the leaders of Tyr, they're actually kind of okay with it in the beginning because it is such a fortified island, and they're like, okay, best case scenario, we hold them out for such a long time we hold back the Macedonian forces for a really long time and stall them and then 
we run, we win over Darius's good graces when Darius comes in and destroys the army, and we get rewarded for it. Yeah, and you get it. The position that Parminian and Alexander were in is an extremely sketchy position because anytime you're sieging a city, you always want to have the ability to be able to leave your position because with a siege, you're usually besieging them, hoping they give in before there's any form of reinforcements. And usually if you're besieging a city you have in front of you the walls of the city and behind you you can be encircled very easily and then you're in a super bad spot and in alexander parmenian's instance they're they're on the coast which is even worse because they have water in front of them you know they can't they have nowhere to go they would go straight into the ocean and then there's heavily fortified uh, artillery loaded walls of of tear in front of them so they're they're hoping they're banking on the fact that darius isn't going to be able to get reinforcements quick enough to come and launch a counteroffensive. Right. And then the only siege that Tyr had been under prior was when it was the old Tyr on the mainland, and that lasted 13 years. Yeah, so they, they have the they have the opinion of themselves as being very good at holding out. And 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 to to be fair, they they have no uh they have no real contest in the ocean. So they're just being able to you know launch ships, barges to go get them resources. So they could last for forever, right? If Macedonia doesn't have a standing navy but they don't they don't really see what what alexander launches next they don't nobody really would have thought what what he's gonna do next yeah i think it's all it, it, yeah in almost kind of a, another middle finger fashion to tear he demolishes the entire old city mm-hmm. of tear on the mainland and uses all of those resources to build a freaking land bridge yeah which it's not just a land bridge right you, you got to understand he's building a extremely wide land bridge that is also very deep it's it's like four to five meters deep into the water and it's made out of stone yeah and i think it's like 200 meters wide according to some accounts which which is absurd when you're 200 meters is is 600 to 700 feet that's how how wide he was building this thing and he was making it out of stone it wasn't you know just dirt and sand he was dropping actual pieces of the of old tier into the the water to create a bridge so that he can actually bring his artillery's catapults and ballistas to the walls which is just crazy yeah and the the speed that they build it is wild it takes them only a few months to build this entire massive con- construct that's jutting out into the ocean and it's it's interesting because there's a lot of actual lore that surrounds this time period in the siege uh, multiple accounts surprisingly enough, say that there is a sea monster that washed up onto the the land bridge that they were building, mm-hmm. and then it didn't damage anything and just kind of flowed back into the sea. But then both sides took this as a sign that Poseidon was with them. And then there's also another account that someone in Tyre had a dream that the god Apollo left their city to support Alexander. And so the people of Tyr like, chained the statue of Apollo down in their city. So there's like a lot of weird superstition going on at the same time that Alexander's and the Macedonian forces are building this land. Yeah, bridge. it's kind of kind of synonymous with with Troy, how it's getting ingrained in mythology. Like they're trying to make this heroic deed that Alexander's doing or this heroic defense of, of Alexander. They're trying to ingrain it in their own mythology. You know, that seems to be a very common thing for that period of time. And at first, the, the inhabitants of Tyr, they are kind of mocking Alexander for trying to build this giant land bridge. They actually row out on boats and, and like heckle him mm-hmm. and the Macedonian forces for like, oh, you think you're better than Poseidon? You can just take the sea. 
Yeah. But <laughs> apparently he could. Well, I mean, they, they get they get pretty far. They get about 30% of the way, and then it comes to the realization of both sides that they really can't continue production of the bridge if there's no way to defend against the Phoenician troops that are on board these ships that are coming with you know catapults loaded on them that are just raining constant hell down on Macedonian forces. They, the construction workers, the, the engineers have to stop, and, and they're pretty much stuck. But then... Though probably most one of the most interesting things about this uh, the siege is that they build some of the largest siege towers that has ever been seen. Some claim the largest that have ever been constructed in in the entirety of of ancient civilizations, a hundred and sixty feet tall, which is the equivalent of fifteen stories. Fifteen story yeah. <laughs> siege towers. Two of them. He constructs two of them, and. He covers the entirety of the tower in animal rawhide so that they're not able to to uh, light it on fire because it would be resistant to the arrows, the fire arrows. So just a, a remarkable feat to even begin construction of the bridge, but then also in a period of a month or two, uh, two months, build the largest siege towers that had ever been seen. And he then used those, which at the top had catapults, their their main artillery and then towards the bottom and in the middle they had ballistas to fend off the the uh, phoenician fleet that was harassing the engineers yeah these large these humongous siege towers are on the land bridge that they're building yeah on that's that really shows you how wide it is too because these things are huge they're they're massive it just blows your mind because nobody really did things like this i know that there was another instance several years actually uh, later with the uh, Ant- I think it's Antigonon Antigone that they, they were sieging the city of Rhodes and they built 140 foot tall siege towers but that's that's a land a land siege mm-hmm. not a not an ocean siege and this the, this this man Alexander decides to build massive the largest siege towers and then have them cross the ocean to get to this this fortified city just wild yeah so at this point the phoenicians and Tyr kind of realized that oh this is uh this is not looking too good for us and apparently they actually launch one main offensive where they uh, they load up one of their vessels with a bunch of um i think explosives and flammables and they ram it into the end of the um the land bridge and it explodes yeah, they that is actually interesting. The the strategy they employed they used three horse barges, right? That were mainly used for just transporting agriculture, cultural products, and and ranch animals. And they loaded it full with anything that could could catch sulfur and branches, you know, uh, wood. And then they put on the top of the masts very large barrels of oil. <laughs> And so their plan was that they would launch them towards the two towers and then the masts would catch. And then when the mast collapsed, the oil barrels would fall into the fire and explode. It was basically they created a bomb and they sent those three into the two towers and it, it scared off everyone that was working, all the engineers, all the ones manning the, the towers and destroyed them. Pretty, yeah, it was, it was pretty effective. And this is pretty interesting because we see that the Phoenicians defending Tyr are actually very innovative throughout this whole siege. Mm, yeah. They they make up like a lot of interesting weapons that they use. 
Yeah, it's true. I mean, both sides are, are doing engineering feats that, you know, you don't really see in that uh, time sieges that most sieges were just starvation sieges where you just block all transport of resources and just hope that they would give out. But yeah, they're, they're, they're going, they're going at it in any way possible to try to get an edge on each right. other. And it comes to a point where Alexander sort of realizes that he can't really win this fight without a naval force. And luckily throughout his giant or his campaign and all the naval cities he's captured he actually has built up a pretty sizable navy at this point in time and he um, is able to get a bunch of reinforcements like 200 ships to come aid in the siege yeah and uh, the the king of cyprus has been he becomes pretty i wouldn't say enamored but he comes very interested with alexander's campaign and he himself dedicates the majority of their standing navy cyprus's standing navy to alexander's cause and actually joins up with him so now alexander's got 220 240 ships at his disposal and also the majority of those ships that came from alexander's side are actually phoenician ships that he had taken from the previous cities because those were all coastal cities and had a standing navy so now he's actually got uh, superior numbers in the sea and this is after seven to eight months of of sieging the the city and he's able to actually use his original you know strategy to starve them out he can actually uh, block the the two harbors that lead into tier and prevent them from being able to you know get any resources or leave their city right but it's not really alexander's style to sit and wait for a mm-hmm. siege like that so he takes a very offensive approach with this new naval power that he acquires and instead of just the little bit poking back and forth fighting that they were having on the land bridge he pretty much starts doing full frontal um, assaults uh, from the sea and from the land. Yeah, and they uh, they actually can put several rams on uh, two galleys, two or two, maybe three, I think it's two or three large galleys that he got from Cyprus. He arms them with giant battering rams, and he focuses on the southeastern wall of Tyr, which is close to one of the harbors, which was the one of the smaller walls. And his plan was to bring these ships close enough to the wall that they could make impact with the ram and then chain them down to to the ground to the ocean floor so that the ship wouldn't lose traction and they could actually make damage to the wall but once again the phoenicians are quite clever and they send out several divers to jump uh, to dive into the waters and cut the the anchors away so that the ships wouldn't be able to make impact on the walls but Alexander, once again, they're going back and forth. He uh, he re-anchors them with large metal chains so that they can't cut the, the anchors. Yeah, and at the same time, there's um, kind of a land force that's pushing up on the walls. And then the, the inhabitants of Tyr, again, are pretty innovative. And they actually, since they have very good metal and bronze workers, they craft these giant shields. And then they fill them with sand and then they heat it up like super hot to where the sands basically just burns the skin to the touch and they dump it on, on the Macedonian soldiers and it gets between like their armor and apparently it's super painful. And so th- these these Phoenicians, they're not really good at fighting hand to hand, but their innovation yeah. has really gone a long way in the sea. Yeah, and, and the reason they employed sand from the accounts from Arian was that they had no access to oil anymore because they had been pretty much starved out for the past few weeks since there was a blockade on their their ships. 
And so they, they cleverly devised uh, heating up sand instead of oil, because usually the, the play would be to pour boiling oil on, on the defenders, and then you could catch them on right. fire. You could just prevent uh, a unit from even getting close to the walls, but they decided to use sand, which is pretty clever. It's very, very ingenuitive. Yeah, so it's very tense fighting, and then finally Alexander is able to break through with his forces. Yeah, and like Clay said, the Phoenicians are very good in the sea, but they're not very good in you know one-on-one combat. So the garrison is extremely quickly overtaken in the cities in Alexander's hand within an hour of, of breaking through the wall. Yeah, so once the Macedonians are inside the city, that's pretty much the end. It's, it's over at that point. Um, but uh, so yeah, Alexander is very vengeful to those that piss him off pretty much just anybody anybody that doesn't submit he, he has like a, a very large distaste for people that don't immediately submit to his his authority right yeah so it's estimated that about six thousand inhabitants of Tyre were killed in the street battles and then another two thousand men were crucified on the beach yeah crazy and it's just that's so brutal and most of the women some of the women and children were evacuated prior to the siege starting. Yeah, they were brought to Carthage. Yeah, yeah. But the ones that were left were all enslaved. Yeah, 30,000 inhabitants, pretty much because prior to the siege, there was about 40,000 people that lived in Tyre. And, so. and then what does Alexander do after all of this? He makes a sacrifice to Melkart. Yep. But, you know, what's interesting, too, is, you know, you'd think that the person that Alexander would be the most upset with is the, the king of Tyre the leader of the Phoenicians, but just like when he defeated Darius in the Battle of Issus, he treats the nobles and the, the aristocrats of the conquered force with like a lot of respect. And the majority of the nobles in Tyr took refuge in the Temple of Malachart, and he doesn't really have any reprisals against them. It's just the, the general population and the soldiers, which is very interesting. I don't know if it's because... He thinks they're above, you know, the the Tyrians or or what it is, but he, he doesn't really do anything to them. He lets them just go without, mm. without yeah. any vengeful. Maybe it's because he does have a lot of respect for uh, like the the religions and for people that are import, important in the religion. And I guess the way that Tyr was set up is the higher up people or the most important as well as religious officials. Yeah, so that's... And they pretty much just they raise the majority of tier it's it's like complete just destruction yeah so this siege was a pretty important historical event because this is when the macedonian navy actually becomes super powerful and strong and is almost it rivals that of the persian navy at this point yeah and the you know the the land force of the persians have been all but wiped out and now the you know darius is trying to you know formulate another army to contest the macedonians and now they have a navy so it's not looking too good for the Persians as the only thing they really had left was a Navy. And I just want to do, uh, I want to do a new rating scale. So I want to rate the tactics mm. that were used in the siege of Tyre. And my rating scale is going to be on it's, it's like the highest that it is on the rating scale is flaming war pigs. <laughs> the best strategy of all time, flaming war pigs. That's the, that's the best strategy ever made. And for those that don't know, Flaming War Pigs were implemented by ancient Rome. I think it started in like uh, 200 BC around there, where they would send pigs on fire into 
what forces were they? Were they it was it was a like archer mounted on elephants. Yeah, it was, it was elephants. mainly against elephants. Yeah, to disrupt the elephants. Because for some reason, for some reason, elephants are very terrified of flaming pigs. I don't know why anybody would be very terrified of flaming pigs. <laughs> right. Yeah. But yeah. So scale from zero to flaming pigs. I like it. I would say that. I mean, this isn't this isn't burnt bacon here, but. This is probably like a smoked ham. Are we looking at both sides of it? Are we looking at the Tyrion's defense as well as the the Alexander's besiegement? I guess we have to. So I mean, it's pretty high up there because it was you know it's you don't really see a lot of instances of just like pure ingenuity on both sides. That's true. Both sides here really displayed a lot of interesting tactics. But we can't give them a flaming pig right off the back. You know? No, no, no. They, I, they're pretty. This close. is going to be smoked ham. Smoked ham. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, clever. That's this one. But okay, so this ends Alexander's campaign into Phoenicia. This is, he has now captured the entirety of Phoenicia. Mm-hmm. What's next on the list? So his plan now is that now that he's got a navy and he's taken the majority of the coastal cities in the Levant, all he has is Eastern Middle, uh, Eastern Middle East and uh, the entry into Egypt, which could be a big flanking maneuver if Darius were to land troops in Egypt. So he focuses to the south on Gaza which is one of the heavily fortified city in Syria. Right, yeah. So Gaza, it isn't the island nation of Tyr, but it is still very heavily fortified with, I think it has like some of the, the tallest walls at the time. Yes, that's a very important point. They're extremely tall. That, you know, we're talking about 15-story tall siege towers. They were much higher than these siege towers, which comes into play in the siege of Gaza. Yeah, so Alexander shows up with his forces and the you know same type of thing it would be great if the city surrendered but the commander Batis believed that gaza was so heavily fortified and they had enough resources that they could survive a lengthy siege and give darius enough time to amass an army to come fight the macedonians Mm -hmm. and like we said in previous podcasts darius was very good at rallying an army even though he's kind of been embarrassed he still can generate forces very quickly so that's also another thing that alexander's got to be looking out for and then it wasn't unreasonable for batiste to think that they could hold out long enough but they were wrong yeah so alexander again takes a very aggressive approach with very a, a large amount of siege engines and catapults and siege towers and he focuses his efforts on the south side of the wall which he deemed to be the weakest and just pretty much starts bombarding yeah but uh, so the plan was to create um, some form of hole, just like in tier, so that they could actually put troops through. Because if they get troops into the city, it's over. But the walls are extremely thick, and there's not much progress being made in fracturing the walls to actually get in. So he wants to employ the use of his siege towers that he's now repaired from the siege of tier, but. The walls are too high. So what does he do, Clay? Yeah, so the next best thing, instead of going through the wall, is to go yeah. under it. So he begins this, he orders his forces to begin tunneling under the walls of Gaza. So it was a very common strategy employed in, in sieges to sap, which was, it was either to get underneath the walls and launch an offensive through those tunnels, but mainly it was used to um, disperse the supports of the walls themselves. Because if you were able to go underneath the, the massive, you know, 20-story wall that weighs thousands of tons and you were to get rid of all the dirt underneath them, 
they crumble very quickly because they have no you know they have no ground to stand on so they would employ the use of of very quick hard working pretty much never stopped sappers that would just dig and dig and dig and locate the wall uh by by sound they bounce sound off the walls and they'd be able to figure out where they were in the tunnel and this strategy actually employed most of the time to counter sapping was counter sapping <laughs> the counter sapping was counter sapping they would dig themselves underneath the other tunnel and then they would uh fight them in the tunnels and prevent them from from getting any further so that's what that's what they originally try yeah so uh, alexander is using this sapping technique to try to weaken the walls and then he also the accounts say he launches four assaults the fourth one being the one that that is successful but they also say that the first three assaults were not really that aggressive assault it was more just kind of um archery and and testing the strength of the walls and the artillery yeah right so in the fourth assault that's where he goes all out pretty much and he builds these mounds to put his giant siege towers on so they can attack the wall better yeah and these are large mounds these are 50 60 foot mounds and it takes a while for them to construct them because they're under constant bombardment from the artillery and the archers of the gazians yeah, apparently Alexander actually was injured in the shoulder. He yeah. was hit by, um, I d- they didn't really say if it was an arrow or a piece of some of the artillery or something like that, but he was wounded in the shoulder mm-hmm. and then recovered very quickly. But it's important because it was, according to the legend, an omen that he would be wounded in the soldier- shoulder and then take the city. Yeah, and he also supposedly is told uh, it's told in both instances of the Siege of Tyr and the Siege of Gaza, he's fighting with the men. He's not just sitting back and watching happen. And then in both uh, instances, Arian claims that he's on top of the siege tower, being one of the the first people to uh, really get into combat. Yeah, the first people to cross the wall. Yeah. So yeah, that's what that's what they do. They they employ the another clever tactic which was sapping, a combination of sapping and building these massive mounds so that they could get enough height on the siege towers to actually get over the walls. And they take they take Gaza. They, they take it. And that's, that's really bad for Darius because Darius needed them to hold out long enough that he could launch a counteroffensive and have still Gaza in support and be able to, to participate in the battle. But now Alexander's got two of the most heavily fortified cities in the Middle East and Syria under his control. Yeah, so they do take Gaza, and in Alexander fashion, he ties Batis to his chariot and drags him around the walls until death, just like Achilles did to Hector at Troy mm-hmm. to pay homage to Achilles again. Yeah, it's and it once again brings up the point, why did he choose to, to so brutally treat Batis, but not the king of Tyr? Whenever the king of Tyr did more to offend Alexander than Batiste did, interesting. Yeah, I really think it has to do because uh, the king of Tyr is considered like pretty holy. Yeah, maybe so. And I think Alexander respects that at this point because he is very into the religion. Yeah, and you know the one thing that I was thinking about earlier, whenever we were we were both researching the siege of Tyr and the siege of Gaza, is that it's really a shame that there's not more information about what transpired inside of the walls while the siege was happening. Because in most cases, you only get the, you know, story of the victor. It'd be really interesting to hear 
you know, what tier did, what, what strategies they were employing, what cat, what the council decided on, you know, where they were getting their resources. If they're in constant contact, with Darius, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's a shame that we only get, you know, Arian and Plutarch's, um, yeah, we get the, account. only the Macedonian accounts. And also another interesting point is that there's also a, a lot of differing, um, stories or accounts of what actually occurred in the, the siege of Tyr. Uh, Arian claims oh, yeah. what we've been talking about, which is the more commonly accepted one. But uh, Polanius, yeah, uh, he states that Parminian was actually in charge of conquering Tyr, and and uh, Alexander was off taking cities across the Levant, smaller cities. And Alexander only came to Tyr towards the end, whenever Parminian was actually on the receiving end and not not successfully taking the city and he ignores Parminian's uh, battle and goes and takes the city for himself, which most likely didn't occur because Alexander's been more, you know, the the aggressive leader that wants right. to, to be there for himself and doesn't really take the self safe edge in anything. But I was also reading, I think it's, and I think Plutarch says this, but during the siege, Alexander leaves to go fight Arabians at, Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Mount Antilobanus or something, and saves his tutor Lysimachus, and then there's this whole like side story for that that I didn't really want to get into, but I don't know. Maybe he was gone for a majority of the siege. Yeah, maybe maybe he did leave, but I think I think the account of Parmenian being solely responsible is probably not got much much uh, strength to it. Right, and th- there's also another account that the actual hero of the the siege was at. Admetus, which was um, the leader of a high up Macedonian commander and pretty much the leader of the infantry, and he died in the battle, but he led the main force to take the city. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of that's that's the interesting thing too is that for all we know, these stories that we're telling and these these accounts could be completely incorrect, and that the actual the actual reality of what happened maybe was not communicated well or wasn't written down accurately, and it might have gone completely differently. True. So all that we know is that. Tyr was taken by the Macedonians. Yeah. And they did build a land bridge because it, yes. Tyr is not an island today, FYI. <laughs> that, that, and that's, this is the reason why. Yeah, that's that's the most interesting thing. That stone bridge still stands. And also, it's been now covered almost completely by sand and it's become a, uh, a causeway. But yeah, so and it, one thing that's just kind of staggering to look at is just the timeline. So the siege of Tyr was started pretty much at the beginning of 332 BCE, and the siege of Gaza ended the same year. So both of these sieges occurred in one year, which is wild. Yep, pretty insane. Yeah, he has a very blitzkrieg strategy in in the entirety of the campaign because we see that with Granicus and Isis too. He's he's moving through Asia Minor. He's moving through Thrace extremely fast, and even after you know he's he's successfully. Uh, won a battle he goes he keeps going yeah. you know that ends up biting him in the butt later on and but even though this only took a year it did give darius very valuable time to amass a pretty giant army once again with much better resources and better weapons yeah and now that he's got firsthand account he knows that you know you can't really just go full frontal in on on alexander and just try to win with larger numbers he's got he's got a a better understanding of the Macedonian forces now. 
Right. So the next meeting between Alexander and Darius is sure to be a very exciting one. Yep. We're going to be following, you know, the majority of Alexander the Great's campaign until it gets boring. So stay tuned, everyone. And thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. Hi, listeners. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. And if you are, make sure to follow us on all of our social medias. You can find our social medias in the description on our Spotify page. If you enjoyed what you heard, make sure to check out our sister podcast, Gray Skies. Each week, the host Eliza talks about a different national disaster that happened in recent history. And hopefully we're going to be able to collaborate with her. Yeah, so look forward to that. <laughs>